Hello, everyone. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. Uh, this morning, <clears throat> I'm one of the co-hosts this morning, along with uh, Dennis Golfin. And we're so glad to be with you this, this Friday. We just came out of, and I thought I'd share before uh, even Dennis shares the other day, that we're, we're coming out of Ash Wednesday. And, uh, you know, in our nation, in this world, and just so reminded with all the all the vicissitudes of life that we all pass through. Uh, remember that we are dust and from dust we came, from dust we shall return. And we're just trusting the Lord above everything to uh, eventually take us all home with him forever. So I'm, I'm excited about knowing the Lord today. And I'm excited that you would be with us and our whole panel is with us today as well. I'm excited with them. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn it over to our co-host Dennis so he can say several things to us. Thank you, Van. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. We thank God for our panel who's with us in various parts of the country. We've got such a weather stream going on uh, all over the country, but we're praying for everybody's safety uh, that they will come through. Just want to welcome all of our viewers on Facebook and those who, are, who watch us later on YouTube and even those who will be on our podcast on anchor.fm forward slash talk street. So mm -hmm. we want to welcome you to the program today. We've been getting a lot of response from those of you who, who love the diversity of the panel and the diversity of discussions that we've been doing. And so uh, we thank you for that. We're, we're like a little family here and we're just enjoying our relationship and enjoying interacting with each other. And we're glad that you can feel that chemistry coming across. And so we're trying to bring genuine discussion on straight talk, and as Van just said, we are Christians, and so we want to move in and recognize as he goes in and reads scripture about Ash Wednesday, and just talk about some things that are happening in the country and what our experience mm. has been in terms of where we are as Christians, and many of us who are black and even white and whatever our diversity is, we'll talk about that those issues. Okay, Van. All right. Well, you know, this is Black History Month. And I think this scripture from Psalm 78 is very germane to our subject. And it reads, Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power and his wonder has done. His decrees, statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, that they in turn would tell their children. Then they will put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but keep his commandments, they will not be their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. So the point is, the Hebrew people are a people that love history and their Heil Geshikta town, uh, salvation history, they are in tune with that. And so uh, we are recognizing the importance of the knowledge of true history and that we should be teaching our children in every generation the true history from God's word and from living in America, the reality, 
so that our generation can be inspired through the teachings and the biographies that they are exposed to because every, every group of people must know something about their history, biographies and teachings as a source of inspiration. And uh, I'm gonna leave it right there, but I know that uh, Tom has got to go away soon. So I'm gonna let him jump in first and, and start us on our way. I have lived the bulk of my adult life in the deep South in Alabama, but uh, I grew up in Kentucky. It was interesting being in school, learning history and things that were not taught. And of course, we, we did, talked about this a lot. We talked about the fact that, um, you know, the, the, I think a few weeks ago, Van, you mentioned the, the first ship of enslaved people to come to America came just a year after the Mayflower, but no one really knows much about that. That's, that's something we failed to mention. Uh, failed to mention that um, the Declaration of Independence really didn't apply to everyone. It failed to mention um, the, in, in the last century, the, um, the, the riots in Tulsa. And was that 1918? Around that I time? I believe so. Yep. But, but I, I vividly remember sitting in class, I think it was in, in either later grade school or early junior high, and remembering reading the textbook and having this class discussion where it was debated that Black enslaved people in the South had about the same lot in life as Northern laborers. I think that's a really kind of a perverse perspective. <laughs> it's called a lie. <laughs> yeah. But, but I remember having this legitimate discussion that came from the textbook. And as I've talked with others uh, from other states here in the South, they discussed similar things and had that opinion because that's what we were taught. Mm. Mm. That's, that's a travesty. Yes. And so I am, I, for one, I'm, I'm just deeply great, grateful for um, Black History Month and the opportunity to put this emphasis on things that we were not taught and things that we were taught that were just plain wrong. Yes, yes. Good point. Good point. Uh, Sterling, did you have something you wanted to throw in there, comment? Well, I, I'm reminded of uh, of a quote I heard some time back by Winston Churchill, not that he's my favorite person, but there are a couple of things he said that were inspired. He said that the farther back you look, the farther forward you're likely to see. So as Tom was talking, I was thinking, you know, as, as the veil is lifted on the true conditions of history in America, we will suddenly begin to look ahead and see that the reason America is falling into certain uh, devastating states now is because they fail to look at where they've come from. Uh, we don't talk about how the Indians were massacred. We don't talk about how the Orientals were put into force uh, labor and camps. And we definitely don't mm. have any conversation about the enslavement of a, of a whole people in the millions uh, in this country. So as a result, we're going straight ahead as if 
the history that we've written, which is a fantasy, is true. So our future is more of a fantasy. Mm. And, and of course, I'm speaking in uh, somewhat hyperbole, but I, I, I hope you can appreciate what it means. Matter of fact, James Baldwin said it better when he said, people are trapped in history and history trapped in them. So if your history yeah. is fantasy and, you are, and it's trapped in you, then your life is a fantasy. Yes. I think it was Soren Kierkegaard said also, life is lived going forward, but understood looking backward. Yes. And, and, and whoever tells the story, whoever controls the narrative is really important. Whoever controls the narrative. That's why in America, I do agree with we have a right to free speech <laughs> because we got to get this story out there. And by the way, uh, Sterling, uh, all the great publishing houses that Tom was talking about textbooks coming out, they come out of your state of Texas. And, uh, and when, as you unthaw Sterling, make sure that the publishing houses, make sure the publishing, make sure the publishing houses stay frozen. May they stay frozen. <laughs> you know, it, but it is true. I mean, the winners of the wars write the textbooks. That's right. And I, I remember speaking to an older person in Ukraine, and this older person had never heard of Pearl Harbor. Because huh. the United States really wasn't a part of World War II, as taught in Eastern European textbooks. Oh, hmm. Interesting. It's really interesting. I mean, yes. Yeah, who writes history? That's why, you know, and, and I think, um, Lois, all of us, and not that you have to comment on what I'm saying, Lois, but I'm just, I want to go to you next anyhow. But I think that it's important that all of us have a different slant on the same story. And none of us know the whole truth. And that's the beauty of diversity on the narrative, because everybody has a different perspective. It's like when you read the Gospels. I mean, good. You get it from different angles in context of who they're talking to. Well, we need American history in context of who we're talking to. I think that is helpful to us that iron is sharpening iron and that we learn different views because no one person or people know the whole story of human history in America. Lois? I was just thinking about... Uh my life and, and my history and and um, and as a white person my sense of black history and I think for me and I'm probably dating myself here but um, I think for me and maybe a lot of white people the 1976 series Roots um, was a, a huge eye-opener you know as a I was a kid you know a teenager at the time and um, to see that, and it was so profoundly moving as, as a, a teenager. And, um, you know, my, my dad was very intentional about taking us to the black church. And we'd have go there and visit there after, you know, we were done with our services. The black church services would be going on for a long time. And so we'd go there. So I, uh, you know, we had uh, in Long Island, our church was very mixed, and and uh, you know I've had a lot of experiences. But as far as a sense of history, that was such a vivid portrayal. Um, and and yet I think when we talk about Black history, we need we need to to keep expanding the story, uh, how 
broad and amazing it is, you know, uh, to only see, we, we have to see slavery, we have to see Jim Crow, we have to see all these things. And yet, we also have to see, um, you know, every aspect of, of the perseverance and the creativity and the the um, the commitment to community and <clears throat> the contributions to society and you know all of these things and this week I've just been so enjoying the PBS series on the Black Church and we've watched three hours out of the four we've been just kind of taking an hour a night so we can process and and uh, go through and last night in um I'm, I'm presently doing an online uh, reading book sort of book club reading group with um, Jamar Tisby about his book um, on, on uh, how to be anti-racist. And, um, and uh, you know, we were talking about the, the Black Church series and it's, it's multifaceted story. You know, one of the, they did cover Pentecostalism, but they didn't really, they didn't mention Seymour. They mentioned Charles Mason. Um, but the, and the Pentecostal part was was kind of short in there, um, but also Jamar brought up that um, you know some folks have been pointing out that there wasn't um, talk about the the black uh, blacks in the Catholic Church, and you know who thinks really about that because you know we're always used to thinking Baptist and Methodist and Pentecostal and Church of God and Christ you know and everything, so I think we need to just keep keep expanding our, you know, opening our eyes a little wider and a little wider and not just looking, but then reflecting mm. and saying, okay, so what does that mean for me, for us? And one of the things that came up last night was seeing the black church as kind of the, the hope for the American church. And I really, I, I really, you know, with all the things we've looked at with white evangelicalism and uh, Christian nationalism in the United States, I, I am encouraged uh, by the history of the black church and also to uh, by the heart of the black church and the spirituality and um, the desire to for justice in the world that justice is part of the core of, of our salvation story and um, so if anybody wants to kind of speak to that you know the idea of seeing the the, the role of the black church in in healing America and in sort of helping the church to be the church again mm -hmm. I would be interested in hearing your 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 input on that. <clears throat> Well, just before I go to Rob, because I think Rob's on today as well, is he not, Dennis? Right. Yes. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said that the, the role of the Black church is to, to redeem the soul of America. So, Lois, you're right on in that, and there's a lot to be said about that. But I appreciate you um, giving a wide spectrum. There's, you know, the, the Black church is so diverse, and we are not monolithic, and nor are we as a people, nor are any people in this nation. So we got to have... That's why in academics, Lois, we got PhDs in this area and PhD in that discipline and that, because there's just so much to be known that no one person can know it all, but we can labor through our lives in different areas. But I'm going to invite um, Rob into the conversation since he's a world traveler as well. <laughs> Not these days. <laughs> I don't travel much beyond the four walls of my little study here. <laughs> room is just a few paces away. Uh, it's a good thing Cheryl and I like each other. 
Yes. Put it that way. Marriage is wonderful. That's right. <laughs> 43 years and we still enjoy each other and we're thankful right. to God for that. But before I even get started with any comments, I've got to ask uh, Brother Sterling there, uh, I, I came in a little late, so I didn't hear how you're doing down there, dear brother. Are, uh, mm -hmm. are you and all yours uh, all right down there? Actually, um, things are, by the grace of God, uh, going quite well. Uh, there are certain amenities that are not available. For instance, we have no water in our place, and we haven't had it for several days or so. And so you call that an amenity? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, sounds to me like a necessity, but... <laughs> don't have water. <laughs> so I spend a lot of time outside shoveling snow. And uh, in order to, to use it to do things like cleaning and commodes and things. So that's the uh, aerobics that I perhaps would not have gotten before. And <laughs> we had seven inches of snow. There's enough to go around. You know, not, not to be disrespectful of your plight down there, dear brother, which uh, causes us all concern. But Van, you've been with me to the Basureros the garbage dumps, the inhabited yes. garbage dumps of Mexico City, where we did a lot of work over the years, yes. Yes. missions, humanitarian mission work. And when I heard these reports, Sterling, of folks going outside melting snow so they could fill their toilets so they could flush them, Van, you'll remember, that's what we did in the garbage dumps. You'd have just this commode sitting there disconnected from any uh, you know, plumbing so you had to take a bucket of water, pour it into the commode to make it operate properly. Yeah. I mean, Vander wants to know about this stuff. <laughs> okay, now, I, I, I'm just saying that, you know, it's stunning yes. that certain political interests in Texas want to take Texans to that level. <laughs> they, they want to inflict that on Texans. And that's just my commentary there. But anyway, back to the subject at hand. <laughs> Lois, you, you raised such a, a, a good question there, you know, about those of us who, who uh, were deprived of the true American story. I don't want to sound like a victim, but I do want to register that deficit that so many white folk, the vast majority of us, have in this country because we missed that education, Tom, that you alluded to in your comments we didn't get the full story. And so we're at a deficit. We are underdeveloped. Our understanding of the world, of our fellow human beings, uh, fellow Americans. And this is true in the church. We don't understand the true church story. In fact, I'm convinced, uh, Van, you know, you and I traveled together. We shared many platforms together, preaching together over the years. And many of the white, mostly vast majority of white churches that I've preached in over a 40-year career know little to absolutely nothing. Some of them know less than nothing about the black church because they actually have the wrong and harmful information about the black church. But the one thing we fail to appreciate is how much white evangelicals emulate the black church, black preaching styles, for example. I, I like to say to white uh, ministerial audiences, 
I, I'm going to tell on all your Sunday morning fantasies. You all wish you were black in the pulpit. Almost every one of you. Come on, brother. You know, Come on with it. Come you know what it. black pulpiteering is. And so do I. And we try, but we fail miserably at it. And so I like to say every white minister's fantasy is that he's really black for an hour on Sunday morning when he's in that pulpit. Or and she I say it humorously, but I say it with a point mm -hmm. that we, we have learned, we want to learn, we want to emulate, and yet we've been told that this is a forbidden subject. This is something, no, you know, we all have our distinct styles and, you know, of course they have theirs, we have ours and, you know, we shouldn't try to force each other's style on, you know, styles on one another and that sort of thing. Well, there's a story to be told here, why we feel that way. Mm -hmm. And when we look at our origins, Lois, you, you, I think you alluded to, um, uh, to uh, Azusa Street and Seymour, mm -hmm. and the beginnings, the Pentecostal beginnings, that the power of the Holy Spirit was so pronounced that it eclipsed these severe divisions left after the war and after uh, the abolition of slavery, such as it was, but in any case, and, and it eclipsed that and brought people together for a moment in time until they remembered again mm -hmm. what they were told to forget and ignore. Mm -hmm. And so separated again. And we've seen some good exercises. You know, I remember when, um, oh, the then president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, I'll, I'll think of his name in, in a second. I've been with him several times. Patterson. No, no, after him, um, his name will come to me. But anyway, he went down, I think it was to Florida, and there was a foot washing ceremony uh, with uh, leadership uh, from uh, Black Church uh, streams and Southern Baptist, and there, were, there was uh, acknowledgement of sin and offense uh, and forgiveness. It, it was quiet. It didn't get much play at all, but it was important. Uh, but again, it was kept secret. And I was just reminded, I posted this morning, John 18, 20, uh, which uh, I truncated for social media purposes, where Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have said nothing in secret. Mm. And we need to speak of these things openly as we are now. And that's why I thank all of you. Uh, when I was hurrying around this morning, I was doing, I was on another project, man, you, you know about that. Mm -hmm. uh, a news conference will be involved with this afternoon on, on uh, Christian nationalism. But uh, I was working on that and I'm hurrying along and Cheryl said, what are you hurrying for? I said, I got to get to straight talk. I got to get on the <laughs> band and the gang. And she said, oh, you need, you know, you've got so much going today. You're going to do that too. And I said, it's the only thing that enriches me. The rest of it depletes me. <laughs> me. So I get so much out of this. Amen. And, and it fills me. I get so much more than I give here. And, and we, everyone needs that. And especially the white world needs it. So, 
I'm hoping to get this out as far and wide as possible so that we take these things out of secret and speak of them openly. Mm, uh, Rob, were you talking about James Garrett? No. Uh, okay. Uh, Ronnie Floyd. Ronnie Floyd. Ronnie Floyd. Okay, yeah, sorry, too. Synapses are kicking in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ronnie Floyd. <laughs> okay. Who washed the feet of his black brethren. Right. And uh, that was a big thing for Ronnie Floyd, just knowing the environment he's in, it was risky, uh, but he did it. However, it was kept quite quiet and, and, mm -hmm. and should have been very open, but be that as it may, it was a small start. Now, Sterling, I think, uh, Dennis, are, are you through right there? Or am I, I don't wanna interrupt here if you were going somewhere, Dennis. No, no, I just wanted to help draw okay. out with that. Yeah. Uh, Statement right. about which which bishop it was in the right. Southern Baptist. Well, you know, uh, uh, Rob, we're going to have uh, Joel Goza on in a couple of weeks, and I like in his book uh, America's Unholy Ghost, where he talks about how Martin Luther King Jr. and Sterling will identify with this, is that we can either have a evolutionary reform or a revolutionary racial reform. The evolutionary form. Uh, it's like it's just taken us in America too long to get this thing straight. I mean, um, we, we, in theory, we know what needs to take place to change things, but in experientially, it's not happening. It's evolutionary. But Martin Luther King Jr. was pushing a more revolutionary uh, uh, racial re reformation, a revolution where we jump right on this thing. And, and some of the great, you know, even in a negative sense, the great revolutionaries on, on planet earth have taken forth by taken place by radicals and they they move quickly and i but i think as christians who don't believe in violence in any way and believe in the love of god we can still be revolutionary as jesus was a revolutionary in that he spoke the truth openly and i think there's a need for us that god breathe on his church um I think it was, I think I was telling Sterling too that uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson talked as a wordsmith, he talked about how the great, uh, the divide of the black and white church is the great artery running through American history. And if we don't fix this artery, we're going to have a heart attack. And we recognize the need right now to tell the like the gospel. We need the gospel told purely. Well, we need the gospel of American history told purely. And then last of all, back to what Lois was saying, I think we have to distinguish between a uh, subject of the race issue, a social construct, the sex issue, the gender issue problem, and the class issue. Classism, like racism, it's all intertwined. And therefore, it's, it's not, there's not a simple answer an approach to such a diverse and complicated uh, subject. I do want to mention one thing before we get to uh, Sterling, who Lois says she wants him to answer that question about the uh, role of the Black church healing the overall um, American community. There was uh, something in 1688 with the Quakers, who uh, in 1688 was, was powerful, made a statement about coming out of slavery and that whole 1688 statement from the Quakers came up 200 years later as uh, what they were against slavery. They wanted to talk about being against slavery 
and the whole Quaker statement kind of got buried down. They didn't want any of the Quakers to be um, slaves. And back to Tom's statement about the Tulsa riots, that was 1921 and, uh, in Tulsa when they um, were in the city, they had a whole black community in, in that area. But the role of uh, us changing American society is going to be long. And I, I know I've watched the Black Church series too, um, Lois, and I'm, I'm just appalled by most of the guys in my circles are too, that we keep attributing the history of the Pentecostal church to Parham when he was just a small part. So Seymour uh, sit on his teachings, but it was really Seymour who led the explosion of Pentecostalism. So let's put it where it is. P Seymour is the historian of the Pentecostal church, not Parham. All right, Sterling. Well, I, I believe that um, we've had some conversation in the past um, where that comment that uh, is attributed to Dr. King, and he did indeed say that. But really, it's birth in a conversation with C.T. Vivian, who was an elder to King and an elder to myself, of course. And he, he told me one night we were, we were having dinner at, in Baton Rouge, no, in St. Louis. And he said to me that, um, he said, um, young preacher, the, until we are clear on our mission, then our mission will not be clear to our people. And um, mm. it took me a minute or two to, to, to digest that. He says that the, one of the highest priority in the black church is to go and save the white church. So, being not a nonviolent person, but I was on the other side. I said, man, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. He says, it will as you mature. Now, remember, this is my elder, so I respect what he said to me. Uh, Kelly Middlesmith was, was up the next morning in, in a session that we were all having, and he echoed almost the identical same thing. So it dawned upon me that we spend so much time trying to come together that we don't necessarily uh, see uh, our real calling. I, I don't. I don't have any problem with eleven o'clock being the most segregated hour on Sunday. I think people should choose to worship where they choose, as long as they're not forced to uh, go to a place. I don't have any problem with uh, with uh, uh, the need to to segregate or or integrate. I don't believe that either is appropriate. I think that folks should should, and I'm going to take this from King. Uh, should be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. On the other hand, um, the, 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 the Black church experience is unique in America because it, it encompasses so much of the African experience, which ultimately was not experienced by those individuals who are in the 20, 20th and 21st century, but it was passed down to us from our forefathers. When I'm in Africa, I'm very comfortable and very at home. Uh, even with, with Rob, where you said you have to take the water and, and flush the toilet where, where when you and your uh, brother Van were together ministry. Well, that's the same thing. We, you carry the bucket from the pond and you bring it and you put it in the toilet. But I'm very at home with that because it was so a uh, lack of pretense. There was nothing pretentious about it. And so when you're in the church, there the fervor, of their celebration far exceeded anything. Once I took 34 kids, 34 young youth and young adults over to, to Ghana, just so that they could experience that. And I cost us a fortune and I've been 
trying to get out of debt ever since. But the reality is that it blessed them and it changed their focus on the world, but it also helped them understand more of what our mission is. I can't stand here and say that it's to save white America because I don't necessarily believe that in total. What I do believe though is that we're supposed to be a standard. We've gone through the furnace uh, of slavery in this country. We survive, we thrive, and we grow daily. So I believe that God doesn't do anything arbitrarily or, or without, without a plan. And I think we're part of that plan. Mm -hmm, I agree. So, so in a sense, Sterling, what you're, you're saying is uh, there's sort of a, an, an active and a passive uh, way of looking at this mission. Um, if I understand what you just said correctly, that uh, when, when was it C.T. Vivian that said to you about saving the white church? Okay. Yes. So when he mm -hmm. said that, um, not necessarily challenging you to, you know, go out and, you know, make that your daily mission to, you know, knock on and bang on the doors of white churches and call white pastors and, you know, but rather to, to be who you are and have the black church be who it is in, in Christ likeness, yeah. and in godliness yes. in front of the world as examples, kind of like, you know, the, the Gentiles, when Paul says, you know, uh, provoke uh, the Jews to jealousy. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I always say that, you know, Gentiles haven't provoked the Jews to jealousy. They've just provoked them. <laughs> right. <laughs> right um, but in that sense, you know, of, of, uh, you know, in a way, what Rob was saying about, you know, every every black preacher, uh, every white preacher wants to be that black preacher or be preaching in a black church. But that in, in a sense of good envy, uh, you know, like when I look at somebody like William Barber, you know, I want to go care about people who are poor. I want to I want to take care of the needs that are so real and so evident across the board in our country. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that's that's really important what you just said, <clears throat> Sterling. That um, the the being of of uh, the black believer, male or female, as a as someone to look up to, as someone to say, that's that's what Christianity is, you know, um, not uh, you know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to uh, get into January 6th uh, images, but uh, I think you, you're gather, getting my point here. Um, January 6th is not Christianity. <laughs> I don't care who stands around and sings Our God Reigns in that context. Right. That's not Christianity. Um, but what I'm, what I'm seeing in, in times of perseverance and in seeking and what you've been talking about, Van, with crying out to God and God, I cried out to God and God heard, mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of things. This is what we need. This, mm -hmm. this humility, this humble seeking oh, God to yeah. heal us and to make us more like Jesus. If I can just jump into that, I, I think I heard uh, someone quote uh, Jamar Tisby and uh, Tisby once described himself as a theological mutt. Um, he's, he was baptized in the Southern Baptist Church. He joined a white non-denominational church, and he spent a lot of time in Catholic school. So he, he had a lot of different jackets he wore, but he was himself. And I think that that's really the bottom line. Thank you for 
for that, uh, Lawrence. You're absolutely correct. But mm -hmm. uh, had, had a, 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 at least a dual mission with me. One is that he was trying to get me, keep me from getting killed uh, because I was so ready to charge the group that lived, um, that, that met um, maybe a mile to three miles from me where the Klan's headquarter was. I was ready to charge in there, you know, like, uh, like uh, a Stallone or somebody. But uh, he was trying to help me in that area. He was trying to keep me from uh, going to prison uh, prematurely for some small things. If I'm going to go to jail, go to jail for something big. And then third, he was trying to make certain that I was clear on what my calling uh, was and is. And for that, I look back and I'm eternally grateful. Um, yes, we're supposed to raise the standard, but we keep imitating the imitators. So when you imitate the imitator and the imitators are continually imitating you, then you have the imitators imitating the imitators who are imitating the imitators. Well, there's nothing real in any of that. So the black church got off track years back when they presented to us a white Jesus and a white God and made us believe programming that that, that represented heaven. Well, it's only now that people begin to, to come forth and say, well, we really didn't mean it was white. What we really meant is that they were less black. Well, I'm saying, give me a break, man. They told us that when we were much younger, we may not have been as angry mm -hmm. for what you've done to, uh, to the mental condition of black folks over the last several centuries. Hmm. You know, it, it is true. Thank you for that input there. Uh, just, I want to hit two points before I go back to uh, Rob is that first of all, William Seymour was used by God in a magnificent way. And here we see a demonstration of the power of God in the midst of Jim Crowism. And if God could use William Seymour in the midst of Jim Crowism the way he did, then I believe in this hour in our Christian nationalism and so many other things that we can allow the power of God to use us, male, female, black, white, whatever class, rich or poor, use us for his glory and honor. And, and then secondly, Rob, uh, I think it's so, it, what struck my heart about Dietrich Bonhoeffer was that he was an intelligent German theologian who sat in the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And the cadence of the black preacher spoke to him so clearly that he became born again right there in service by the power of God. And he allowed the black church to teach him about social justice issues. And the problem in white America I see is that they have not allowed us to teach them anything. They think just imperialistic hermeneutics where they're just gonna teach us because we're the child and they're the parents and they have nothing to learn from us. But we all agree that even our children can teach us something, Rob. You know, when you hear Black Pastor say, um, and he goes into his uh, closing, and he says, if I had a little more time, I would well, tell the whole world about what the Lord has done in my life. Well, well on, brother. that's not put on. That's mm -hmm. what You see how easy that was? That's mm -hmm. because it is who we are. That's right. That's it. And, and you literally gave me Holy Ghost goosebumps with that. <laughs> literally, literally, I'm not kidding. Hey, if you can sing and, that again at two minutes before the hour, you know, that would really be very fitting. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And, uh, and, and it takes us back to that sanctuary at Abyssinian 
Baptist, 1931. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the young German pastor, is sitting in that congregation about three, four pews back, uh, listening to the cadence of this great preacher, Adam Clayton Powell. Not junior, by the way. I was in an interview uh, yesterday, and, and uh, my interlocutor assumed we were talking about Adam Clayton Powell Jr., distinct from his father, although in many ways similar. I mean, the, the, but, but there were, are distinctions there. But <clears throat> the original uh, Powell preaching in that church at Abyssinian, and you're right, Bonhoeffer feels this. He feels it in his soul. And later, uh, someone writes about him, say, uh, a relative actually writes about him saying that after his experience at Abyssinian, Bonhoeffer spoke about his feelings in a way he rarely ever did. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a stoic German, uh, you know, taught to restrain his emotions, etc. But it, it connected with him. And these days, you know, I find myself reflecting deliberately, purposefully on um, the better parts of white American evangelicalism, because there are a few. <laughs> there are a few <laughs> redeeming parts left. One of them is that we feel our faith, that we go to the altar in tears, uh, with weeping, uh, that we rejoice and express ourselves and we laugh. Van, you knew my mom, my late mom, yes, yes. Marjorie Shank very well, and she loved oh, wow. you like a son. Yes, she did. And I would think about my mother when she would come to our church back in those days and sit in the sanctuary yes. when we were all together and she would hear your preaching and she'd start whooping and, you know, <laughs> raising her hands and doing all these unbecoming things for a, a Jewish suburban woman, you know, <laughs> because she felt it and it would take her back to her childhood. Yes. I think I've, I've shared this before, but she had a childhood friend. Uh, I only ever knew her as Elsie. Uh, a black teenage uh, young woman, contemporary of my mother's, and uh, they had to visit in secret, couldn't be seen, you know, eating lunch together uh, in the open, had to do that secretly, quietly, and then she would later visit Elsie's church on Sunday nights, and she would say, oh, you know, I would just feel that. I would feel the presence of God. And here again, the Pentecostal church, uh, you know, the, the hooping and hollering Baptists, all white, they owe this part of their heritage, the feeling of the gospel, the feeling of the power of God, the, the encounter in our bodies with the reality of God, the black church helps us to feel that, to experience that, and did over over time and over history. And and it is not. I was about to say it's not well examined, 
in church history. I never heard about it, never examined at Elam Bible Institute, one of the oldest continuous Pentecostal uh, training centers in the country that I attended. Never heard about it uh, in any Pentecostal conferences that I attended. Uh, if it was treated, it was treated tangentially, almost like a cute phenomenon, like, you know, back in those days, well, you know, uh, black and white. Uh, oh, is Dennis showing this? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. You okay, uh, it came up a little early on me, but I'm going to go to it if I okay. may, All right. because it, I'm going to, uh, you jarred me back to, I wanted to return to my earlier comment about those things done in secret and hidden and ignored, whispered, never acknowledged, all of that, which goes a little bit to what we're talking about right now, but take a look at this for a minute. Now, I have heard countless white colleagues, fellow ministers say to me, oh, come on, you know, all that stuff is exaggerated, the kind, you know, evangelicals are not racist at their core, et cetera, et cetera. Take a look at this photo and just sit with it for a minute. I never saw this photo ever in my Bible college, uh, Christian university uh, or seminary days. Never saw it. We never spoke of these kinds of things. It was never addressed, but here it is. And I think it's something that every white evangelical pastor should sit with, every denominational leader and ask, is this happening in secret? Is, it, is the ghost no pun intended here, but are the ghosts of these people still present in our sanctuaries? Could this happen again? And when we saw the Confederate flags amidst the Jesus flags on January 6th, Lois, I know we all try to avoid it. We can't. It's like a gravitational pull because it's so instructional for us. Could this happen again. I'm going to pin this somewhere probably in the late 1930s. Uh, I don't know the date of the photo, but it looks 1930-ish. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw when he did his great southern road trip. He drove from New York into Mexico, and he traveled in the deep south, and he reflected on just this, that he encountered in the south so this rob do you know where this was no i don't uh i've wanted to um do that kind of research and i intend on doing I, it. i've been trying i've had that picture for a while too so i've been trying to figure out where it is too yeah i've seen that picture mm -hmm. so there it is there it is and it's something you know we need to sit with because there are plenty I'm going to say the majority of white evangelicals and fundamentalists in this country will deny that this kind of thing ever really happened. And if it did, it was exceedingly rare, one-off. Well, I think just a little bit of research will show that you is know, not the case. Uh, Rob, I think uh, Robert Jones wrote the book, White Too Long, 
he, he yep. does he shows that statistically that that um white evangelicals are more prejudiced than non-white evangelicals <laughs> he, he's got the stats to show that he did a survey and, and and wrote about it it's in his book white too long and uh he makes the point that uh, that that if they're if they're more prejudiced than non-evangelicals then it's not too far a step towards what we're seeing right now on the screen and I, I think we saw this this week in in um, Christian defense of the memory of a certain radio host who passed away without <laughs> acknowledging um, without acknowledging the the racist and misogynistic comments over decades. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, Rush Limbaugh. I so say we don't want to call his name. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> that, that tells you what a coward I am because <laughs> I, I was afraid to name him. Uh, I, I was my head was traveling in the same trajectory as Lois is there. And uh, well, just so. in case he does make it to heaven, I wanted to give him uh, some. <laughs> some kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I I, I just read. Uh, a reflection on his. Hey Dennis, mm -hmm. we can take that off the screen there. Yeah, that, that can come down now. Yeah, we can take uh, it, down. it gets a little, gets a little nauseating after time. Uh, it it has its effect. Yeah, I was enjoying uh, the effect. Thank thank you, Dennis. Thank you for for uh, displaying that. Um, it was an important point I wanted to make. But in reading a reflection on Limbaugh's death. And Van, you know that Limbaugh came to my defense and my brother's defense many times on air. Yes. And those were the years of my wandering uh, far from the gospel. Uh, and in this reflection, uh, this individual said, for so many in this country, listening to Russia's voice was a religious experience. And when we think about that, we bring all our baggage with us to the altar of salvation. And part of sanctification, part of the process of sanctification is naming all that detritus that comes with us, all that baggage. And praise God, the Lord invites us to bring all that sin with us. We bring yeah. it to the altar, so to speak. And it, but what are those creatures, those crustaceans uh, that acquire all the detritus on the on the ocean floor? They're like garbage cans or something. Barnacles. What are they? I don't know. Are they barnacles or what are they? No, there's a creature that oh. that okay. doesn't have a, a proper shell. So it accumulates trash and oh, garbage yeah. and, and heaps it on itself. And it also cloaks itself by doing that. So it both protects itself literally with this shield of trash, but it also um, disguises itself. Well, yeah. I think sometimes of Christians in this way, that as we come, we make our, our salvation journey to the Lord, we got all this 
dare I say, may I, may I speak French here and say all this crap? <laughs> all this crap on us, uh, on our bodies, and, and we're filled with it. it. It's the sinful detritus of the world. And part of sanctification is naming that in confession and renouncing all that in our confession and asking the Lord to release us, free us, cleanse us from all these things. Mm -hmm. And without that, we just sit with all that trash in our pews, in our pulpits, at our lecterns. And as we shape and form our disciples, those under our tutelage and spiritual care, we transfer that clap <laughs> onto them. Yeah. And so we have, this is part of our, <clears throat> of, of our, our burden. It's part of our mission. It's part of our work of shaping and forming disciples. And in the white church, it's naming this stuff. We have had KKK in our sanctuaries. Let's name that. Yes. Yes. And just quickly, uh, before we go back to Dennis, um, I think it's interesting in the story of William Seymour in Azusa, there's the story told of a white gentleman who came from the Carolinas and you heard about the revival in Los Angeles. And so he drove his car all the way there because he wanted God to fill him with the Holy Spirit. He wanted that experience. He got to Los Angeles, got to the church, and in front of the church stood a black man. He said, oh, there is no way this man, this black man is going to lay hands on me. So he went back to his room, and, he, and this is his testimony. Yeah. He said, yeah. I prayed all night because I wanted the power of the Holy Ghost, but I didn't want a black man to lay hands on me. He said, but then he finally came to it in the middle of the night. He said, I had to crucify my prejudice. I had to crucify my prejudice, mm -hmm. Rob. And then he went back to Azusa and William Seymour laying hands on him and he was filled with the Holy Ghost. He had humbled yes. himself, sanctified himself before the Lord and God filled him as a response. Wow. That's what we need to see happen. That's what we, we all need to crucify whatever is evil about us. Whatever baggage we carry, we all need to, to let the Lord crucify that because most of all, we are living to please the Lord and to make his name great in all the earth. And it means we're going to have to do like John the Baptist. He said, I, I must decrease in order that he may increase. And as Sterling brings out, that pursuit of godliness, pursuit of God himself is what we're after. And uh, whatever that costs, whatever that costs, whatever it takes. And by the way, I want to add this since we're on air and it's going to end up on YouTube and other places. With Rush Limbaugh, I just want to put a sidebar say, I pray that he's in heaven and I pray I make it with him. <laughs> but, but Rush Limbaugh and myself, we both need, needed some work <laughs> of sanctification from the Lord. But I do pray that, that my brother is in heaven. Uh, you know, I think that when um, both Sterling and Lewis made the comment, Sterling, back to what Sterling said about how we have to rescue the white church, Van, you gave a good example there of how I think what is got, something's got to happen supernatural 
uh, Lord, she put in there that it's Caswell that came up from South Carolina. That um, is that right? Go ahead. I, I think so. I was I was proposing. I I was wondering if that was Caswell. I, I think it was because he did travel from uh, right um, and, and went up. So holding this group, I, I want to mention. I know we don't have much time, but I do want to mention this in terms of uh, something that we we need to put in here that's very important about uh, Parham. Parham was very racial. And um, he was a racist. He didn't even want Seymour sitting in his classes when he was in Texas. And what he described in 1901 with the with the foreign tongues that he was seeking to send missionaries overseas. And when Seymour invited him down to Azusa Street to see what God was doing there, he called the demonic forces that the, the tongues that he saw there was not like what he envisioned in 1901. In his college up there, he wanted the... Um, young ladies speak Chinese and they want to be able to speak foreign language to take it overseas. That's what they had in mind. But here was Seymour had uh, this supernatural manifestation that was growing. He wanted his mentor to come down and see what was going on. And instead of praising it, he criticized it. He criticized it quite a bit. And that was an amazing part of the story also that developed in terms of this whole explosion of Pentecostalism. And many such uh, cases as like, you know, you've got C.H. Mason, the church guard in Christ, who when he went back to his Baptist church split it because he had went down to Azusa Street and had the experience. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is, I think we see a lot of what's going on and a lot of whites who, who became involved in uh, this whole Pentecostal explosion for whatever reason, especially the white pastors who came in to Azusa Street and all of a sudden with the power of the power of the Holy Spirit, it was like on the anointing. I've read stories. It would seem like nobody didn't care whether they were white, black, or anything with the spirituality that was there. And then they came to themselves and advanced it. And they realized who they was and who they were. And all of a sudden the split started. Amen. Amen. So I guess we're almost out of time here. And I, I, I'm so grateful that, again, on our show here, we are a people that believe in reconciliation. We discuss all these issues as brothers and sisters because we've been called to, a, to be ambassadors of reconciliation around the truth. I'm grateful to everybody's input today. And again, I remind you, we just passed through Ash Wednesday. And with bringing our stuff to the altar, as Rob was saying, all our garbage, uh, let's remember that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. So we might as well take the time to get this thing right. Get it straight before God, because we're going back to dust, and we're going to appear before him, uh, the, either the Bema or the great white throne. And we make the choice, and I want to see him in peace. And I trust that all of you will as well. So I say the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon each one of you and give you shalom in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.